Welcome to our monthly conversations with Konstantin Samailov, who is one of the most respected voices on YouTube about what is happening inside Russia. Konstantin is a well-known YouTuber whose channel Inside Russia comments insightfully on Russia's descent into authoritarianism over the last few years. But now, like many others, he's outside Russia with no idea of when he can return there. Please do check out his videos. They are absolutely fascinating. Um, and he has tremendous insights into what's going on, especially around the economy, uh, uh, which we are going to be talking about, and the election. Two big topics to discuss here. But please also subscribe to his channel and subscribe to mine. Comment on the video, like and share if you like the materials that we're creating. Do please also check out Patreon of both our accounts and uh, buy us a coffee if you enjoy these conversations that we record. Konstantin, welcome back. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, good to see you. Thank you for having me. Let's uh, have too, a conversation. Yeah. Is it too late to wish you a happy new year as well? I guess not. It's still January. Never too late. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've got two enormous topics to discuss today and i you know i scan the newspapers for in-depth coverage of these things and and, and often uh, these topics go underreported let's start with infrastructure because ukraine has been as we know hitting strategic objectives within russia that is sort of lng terminals and so on they are not going out of their way to hit civilian infrastructure which of course is good it fits with ukraine's strategy the thing is, the infrastructure seems to be crumbling and falling apart itself. I don't know if you've seen these images of, uh, you know, apartment blocks where the heating has failed or where the central heating, the central heating pipes in the street have burst. Uh, there's been some extraordinary uh, incidents there. And of course, it's extremely dangerous. It's very cold uh, in parts of Russia at this time of year. Jonathan, I have been monitoring the situation. I have made videos and live streams about that. And I'd like to divide what you just said about Ukrainians hitting the infrastructure. I would uh, say that there are two kinds of infrastructure in Russia. First is basic, uh, what I call the utilities, the communal housing services. And then everything else, uh, like um, roads, uh, industrial infrastructure, you know, oil and gas pipelines and so forth. I would like to talk about the first kind of infrastructure. And I think that Ukrainians have nothing to do with what's going on in Russia right now uh, with the basic utilities. Okay. In the, uh, if you don't mind, let's talk about that. Let's go for that. And as background, I'm not sure everyone kind of understands this because, you know, in, in Britain, for instance, uh, we have uh, electric or, or oil-fired boilers uh, or gas-fired, but they're in each person's house. Each person has the responsibility for that. They pay their own bills. So if something goes wrong, it's usually at the level of an individual house or an individual street. Maybe the street might have some problems. But in Russia, you have genuine central heating, which is a, uh, a power station in a kind of rayon, which is a sort of regional area of the city, and it powers all the apartment blocks, doesn't it? I mean, is is that a reasonable description of how it works, or is there more that people should know? That's a fairly reasonable description of how it works. Uh, I call it the central, well, it's called the central heating. Basically, heat is 
uh, created in one place far away. And uh, usually it's a thermal power plant or a boiler plant. And it's transported through underground or above ground pipelines to um, a heat center. And then from heat center, it's transported um, into individual apartment blocks, into individual um, radiators. Okay. And that's called central heating. That system uh, was built in the USSR and it's incredibly ineffective because there are a lot of losses of heat. And um, the thing is, R Russia possesses so much of natural gas and oil. Uh, and then for the domestic market, they're sold at discounted price that they don't care about losses of heat. Okay. They, especially in the USSR, they, <laughs> the heat cost almost next to nothing. Okay. And um, the new construction, especially individual houses, are not centrally heated. It's just like in England, just like what you said. Each house is responsible, but they're just new houses, okay? The old apartment blocks that consist of majority of housing in large cities, they're centrally heated. And you don't have control, do you? I mean, I remember this from living uh, in St. Petersburg. Uh, you might be... A little surprised that I did live in a Comunalka for a year, which is a little unusual. Um, but the heating comes on and you can't control when it comes on, but you can't control when it comes off either. And I remember being there and we were next to a, a canal. Uh, if anyone knows uh, St. Petersburg, it's near the Marinsky Theatre in St. Petersburg. And sometimes the temperature rises quite a bit. It's already kind of spring. It's warm on the street. And this radiator is pumping heat out you know it's like a sauna so you open all the windows and you have to let the heat out so that's another extraordinary kind of inefficiency there it's called window uh, regulation you regulate how cold or hot in your apartment in, inside your apartment by opening the window you open a little bit or open much and believe it or not but in the ussr they actually created windows with a little tiny compartment on top and it was called fortechka fortechka exactly you would, yeah. yeah you would open that uh just not to open the entire window but you open fortechka so basically it's like you are heating outside you know <laughs> and the heat escapes through fortechka but the thing is the windows designed that way yeah, it's, it's it's extraordinarily wasteful. Mind you, when it is cold, you're kind of grateful for the heat because, uh, you know, when it's minus 35 outside, the apartments usually were fairly toasty warm. But this infrastructure then, I mean, it, this infrastructure exists for many millions of apartment blocks across Russia. And we've seen these images of it crumbling. Um, is this because, is this like a crude maintenance debt for decades that the system is actually crumbling? Or is it a more significant problem that the people who would maintain this infrastructure have been sent to the war or are this the material and money that would be used to repair this infrastructure now being channeled towards the war economy? What do you, what do you think of the issues here? Um, there is a perfect storm in the utilities um, right now in the communal housing infrastructure. And Russia is, is covered by perfect storms of different kind. And this is one of perfect storms. 
there are a few reasons for everything all of a sudden started falling apart. Because before the war, until before the war, everything worked more or less how it was supposed to work, okay? And of course, there were um, emergencies, breakdowns, okay? Big ones, small ones. But just to give you an example, when Dmitry Medvedev was the president of Russia, right before New Year of, mm, I believe it was 2011 or 2012 or something like that, uh, 2012 was already Putin. Oh, perhaps Medvedev was the head of the government. And there was a huge breakdown of a large boil, boiler plant, the only boiler plant in the town of... I think 60,000 people called Shaganar. There are two towns, Agdavurak and Shaganar um, in Tiva, in Tiva, the Republic of Tiva. And there was a breakdown and, uh, you know, so many thousands of people were left without heat. And then that's uh, in uh, Siberia and that's brutal, okay? In, in the middle of the winter. And what uh, Dmitry Medvedev personally was handling that situation. To understand you the magnitude of what happens when when uh in the past what happened when something would break down something big as a boiler plant okay and i remember all the way through almost into new year there were news reports coming from that town uh showing how they were fixing things trying to get heat back now what we are having this season and it's called the communal season from uh, about October through March when it's cold in Russia. It's a disaster. 27 major cities had breakdowns, small or large, usually large. Um, cities like Novosibirsk, which is the heart of Siberia, the capital of Siberia. The situation is so bad there that the governor of Novosibirsk province announced an emergency situation there okay he's using all necessary available resources in the city city of three million people and i mean it's so cold there every single it's notorious for cold they know that the winter comes and brings cold weather well this winter they weren't prepared so anyway as things are happening like a big wave, tsunami wave, and it's um, taking Russia over, okay? There are a few reasons for that. Um, of course, the first reason is that um, this year the winter in Russia is cold. I mean, Russia is tropical, you know? It's never cold in Russia. Winters are very mild, and all of a sudden, there's cold, cold winter, okay? Like, no one expected that to happen. They were unprepared. That was a joke, you know? <laughs> uh <laughs> But there, there have um, been, uh, you know, winters. I've got relatives, and uh, we call them up, and they they complain. You know, we have, we've hardly had any snow, or you know, the snow very yeah, quickly yeah. turns to slush. And actually, people don't like that. They like a little bit of cold uh, uh, because it, uh, you know, the the road surfaces are hardened yes. rather than driving through. Yes, them. yes. But they yeah, know yeah. exactly what to expect in the Russian winter. And then the uh, utilities people, they know exactly how to handle cold weather, freezing temperatures, and so forth. Anyway, there are four reasons for, for, for the um, massive breakdowns. First reason is, and I think this is the biggest reason, is there's a shortage of qualified people. 
And where have they all of a sudden gone to? Because they're not here, not in Tashkent, not in uh, Yerevan, not in Tbilisi, not in all those uh, refugee places where Russians ran uh, 15 months ago. They are in Ukraine, in the trenches, at least those who are still alive. Because where mobilization people came to first, when Vladimir Putin announced the mobilization in Russia in on September 21st, 2022, they came to the utilities. Because people at the utilities are the easiest targets, okay? They don't know their rights. They usually don't have high education. They work with their hands. They're very good. They're very professional, but uh, they're, they're the easiest to take to the trenches, to mobilize, okay? And that's where they um, came to, and they grabbed everyone they could do, they could grab, and sent them to Ukraine, you know? Uh, that's the reason number one. We are seeing what's happening, the result of that, what's happening now, the next season, because last season, more or less, they went by. You know, this season, heating season, troubles everywhere. All of a sudden, never happened in Russia. Never, never. Here and there, yes, the breakdowns happened, but not at once everywhere, you know. So that's, uh, I think, the reason number one is qualified people. They just, simply this shortage of them. Reason number two is lack of proper financing because uh, I don't know if you know or not but those new lands that were stolen from Ukraine they are financed through um, from by um, federal budget but also they're financed partially by local budgets there are certain provinces and cities uh, whose governors come up and say and try to score political points, saying, "Oh, for example, St. Peter's, Petersburg is going to be responsible for uh, Mariupol. St. Petersburg will rebuild infrastructure there, will build more houses and things like that." Well, who's going to pay for that? Residents of St. Petersburg, okay, and um, you cut everything that you can cut in terms of financing for St. Petersburg, and you send it what you could cut to, let's say, um, Mariupol, okay? But, uh, you know, people in St. Petersburg, they still live. <laughs> they still use communal services. They still, they need to drink water, you know, they need sewage, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, the same demand, for the services, but there's so much less financing. And in other cities, the financing have been cut as well because, you know, there's war economy in Russia. Everything is being pumped into the military-industrial complex. Number three, the reason number three is lack of foreign parts and local a lack of maintenance, including uh, replacing foreign parts of in, in foreign-made equipment, um and um you know in the utilities industry in the recent 15 years there's been a lot of what's going on a lot of upgrading of equipment new boilers being installed 
um, new uh, thermal power plants built, and you know, I, I I know my job was to build power plants. Okay, I know the industry quite well, and the equipment that was used was mostly foreign made. Two large companies supplied turbines to Russia, gas and steam turbines, uh, Siemens and General Electric. Uh, the Japanese company would, that try, were, was trying to break into Russian market for years and years, Mitsubishi, but with a little luck. And Chinese were always happy to supply their turbines, but in Russia, we didn't buy them because the quality was so low, it's trouble. Um, there are a couple of Russian manufacturers, old Soviet manufacturers, uh, but their turbines were heavy, um, not modern, uh, and very inefficient. Okay, Siemens and GE were top choices to go if you were to build a power plant. And if you were to build boiler, also the, the, the large boilers, uh, Buderos from Germany, Wiesmann or Weissmann from, I think, from Germany. And, uh, you know, now, um, so many more months into operation after the war, systematic maintenance is needed. And that's where the problem comes, okay? Sometimes you can get spare parts. Sometimes you can. Uh, Siemens engineers do not come and service their equipment anymore. So same goes for GE. Uh, big, big problem. And this is just the beginning because equipment uh, has tear and wear. <laughs> okay. And then very complicated equipment such as, you know, turbine, um, uh, exciter, you know, the equipment for power plants. <laughs> they need maintenance. It needs maintenance. The, the, the engineers, uh, chief engineers must come and look at the equipment. Service engineers must be present at quite often and so forth. So that's the reason number three. And the reason number four, which is, um, I haven't heard it anywhere. Okay, no one's talked about that. I've heard three reasons people discussing about this problem in Russia happening. Reason number four, in my mind, is corruption. Because there has been so much of residential housing construction going on in the last 20 years construction boom the industry is very large and it was booming until recently right now there's overstock of uh, apartments to sell okay and you built a huge apartment block um complex just you know 20, 30 apartment blocks next to each other. You know, for that, you need to build new infrastructure, new utilities. You need to build um, perhaps a power plant, a small one. You definitely need to build a boiler. You need to build a new sewage station. You need to build um, um, new pipelines, new communications. Well, that costs money and that can be avoided. You simply use existing infrastructure and hook up your new uh, little town of 60, 70, 100,000 people to existing infrastructure. Water main, sewage, you know, uh, heat pipes, and so forth. Therefore, you increase pressure, okay, but you don't spend money 
to build new stuff for for your uh, nice little project. Okay, all you have to know, of course, it goes against the rules. You know that there's a, a construction code in Russia, and it requires uh, builders to build new utilities. But if you um, talk to certain people, and if you make them happy, they can give you permission to bypass, you know, as an exception, things like that. This entire industry built around that. And this is corruption in its purest form. And it's been going on in Russia for, I don't know, 20 years, as long as I can remember. And recently, before the war, people were saying, hey, look, there's a catastrophe, you know, will happen in the future. You got to do something about the utilities. You, um, you know, build more... Uh, water pumping stations, builds more um, sewage stations, you know, things like that. What are you doing? And it actually happened. The catastrophe happened, and it's happening right now because a perfect storm. Perhaps uh, there would be a few more years of this system um, and everything would be functioning all right if there was enough financing, if there was enough maintenance, and if there were enough people. Okay, but those three things, um, there's not enough people, financing has been cut, and um, maintenance, the problems with maintenance, and that puts so much pressure on existing old Soviet infrastructure, the pipes, the communications, they start breaking. That's why you're seeing this um, horrendous scenes, videos of, of huge fountains, you know, going uh, um, through... Um, from underneath from you know from underneath and and this is what's happening so there are four reasons mm -hmm. lack of proper financing lack of people uh lack of uh, maintenance and corruption i'm not sure what happened on the screen there or if that's recorded but that seemed to be uh rather dramatic timing with what you were saying i think that must <laughs> it wasn't me <laughs> i don't know what that was i think it's a new feature in uh in, in zoom and i need to figure out how to switch it off because uh you don't want it going off randomly in videos, <laughs> um, and this is this is an understood thing, isn't it? You know the the building inspector or even his team, you know, who are, are supposed to say, okay, well, for this much infrastructure, you need this, this, and this, and this. I mean, they probably turn up to work in a brand new Lexus or something, or you know, they get to add another story to their Dacia, or it's it's it probably involves some fairly major bribes. Uh, to the right people. Jonathan, they're probably your neighbors in London. They choose not to live in Russia. Okay, they uh, take the money and run. And uh, they, before the war at least, they resided. The most favorite places were London, south of France, Miami. Um, some went to Southeast Asia, some lived in Dubai. So, uh, and that's, we're talking much more money than uh, just a Lexus. We're talking millions and millions of dollars because the infrastructure costs tremendous, tremendous money to build. You know, uh, if we're talking about new power plant, we're talking about $100 million. And if you can get away with not building one, then uh, good. It's a decent, uh, decent bribe. They, yeah. yeah, another trick they did was um, they would create a small town on paper near Moscow and saying, look, this is what we're going to build. We're going to build two new schools. We're going to build one uh, medical clinic. We're going to build uh, a police uh, They don't mess with police stations. 
um, things like that. And then they just built houses, apartment blocks, huge ones, like 50, 100, I don't know, 30 of them, sell all the apartments, uh, and that's it. They declare bankruptcy, and uh, they leave uh, everything to Moscow, to the, any city, not just Moscow, any city to build. Build the infrastructure. Of course, city doesn't have budget for that. And the people who bought the apartments, then, then they start suffering. They don't know they, they, there's lack of um, spots for their children in schools. They must take their children to school someplace else. Roads are um, usually not that great because uh, those big constructors, they promise to build new roads and, you know, do the whole turnkey town or turnkey district, rayon, okay? And they, in many cases, they just uh, build the apartments, sell the, uh, build the apartment blocks, tenement blocks, sell the apartments and just, you know, go live in London. That's it. And sometimes these areas don't have adequate uh, transportation either. And as you say, uh, the roads may or may not be finished to a certain standard. Um, but here we're seeing the infrastructure. We're seeing general ice and frost really sort of take some kind of revenge here. And of course, as you pointed out, winter is not over. We're not into February yet. There's two potentially two months ahead of uh, extreme cold still until, uh, you know, the ice starts melting. Um which, of course, is a very dramatic moment when the ice starts melting and shifting in the rivers. But in terms of how people live, um, there's still a lot of time for this to get uh, get even worse. You're absolutely right. Uh, winter, winter is in its height right now because in many Russian regions, uh, it gets warm only in April. So we still have two and a half months to go. And uh, I made a video about what's happening in Russian utility industry, and it aired about 10 days ago. Since then, I already have enough material to make new material to make another video. The problems keep uh, arising, uh, pipes keep breaking, and power plants keep shutting down. Um, this is bad. I, it's probably the worst winter Russia has seen in terms of electricity, heat, and so forth. And you know what? They don't cover it in Russian news. To find these things, you need to dig deep. You need to be subscribed to tons of Telegram channels. Uh, the biggest source is every city and every town has a Telegram channel that um, kind of update the residents on what like uh, everyday happenings. And this is where I get my information from. Um, something happens in a city, boom, it's a news, but not national news, not propaganda, not state media, but in the Telegram channel that someone maintains. That, that's what the best reliable source to get the information. They usually post videos, pictures of that. Things um, keep happening, pipes keep on breaking, um, troubles everywhere, and it's far from over. And uh, honestly, I don't even know how to comment. I'm just monitoring the situation, and I don't know what they're going to do, how they're going to improve. 
Well, uh, one of our powerhouses uh, in the Russian parliament, uh, Senator Gurulyov, he um, was honest. He said the government doesn't have money uh, for, you know, government doesn't have money to fix these things. So um, we will raise the tariffs for about 15%. And, you know, regular people would have to pay for that for the breakdowns from their own pockets. Uh, well, at least guy was fair. <laughs> and then um, I think it was him or or Senator Kartapolov, uh, either one, I'm not sure. Uh, it was a shocking revelation last winter in 2022, late 2022, when Russian armed forces started attacking infrastructure of Ukraine. And they um, aimed, you know, uh, substations, power plants, um, sewage stations, and so forth. And there was a wave of airstrikes happening late 2022, if you remember. And uh, for the, I clearly remember the interview. For the very first time, a Russian senator came out and he was live and the uh, Propaganda uh, personality Popov asked him, well, what's going on? Why are Ukrainians um, hitting civil infrastructure? Uh, why Ukrainians complain that that you uh, we're hitting uh, civil infrastructure? That can't be true. And, and he said, well, you know, it's true. We're aiming at the civil infrastructure because we want Ukrainians to freeze. The more they freeze, the more pressure they apply to their government to stop the hostilities and so forth. And he confirmed that Russian armed forces aimed civil infrastructure, okay? And now, you know what I'm saying? What comes around, what goes around, comes around. This is it. So the wind, reap the whirlwind, I think, is the phrase on that one. And the big irony, of course, is that genuinely, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of Ukrainians last year, and a lot of them were recalling winter because winter was tough. You know, many people were in uh, cold apartments. Fortunately, it wasn't a hugely cold winter. But still, you know, when the temperatures, uh, you know, zero minus five, is that that's not typically as cold as it gets. But of course, people spent a lot of time without heat and electricity. They'd go to sit in cafes. They'd go to the underground or bomb shelters to get warm, charge up their phones and so on. Um, and also a lot of shops and cafes hadn't yet got the mobile generators. So last year was incredibly tough. This year, almost all Ukrainians are telling me that it's an extraordinary contrast. Even in Kherson and Kharkiv, which are being hit extensively by missiles, electricity's on, the heat's on, every shop, every cafe has a generator. Everyone is prepared and equipped. And that hasn't happened this year. I mean, I'm sure the Russian army would have would have loved to 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 impose those same kind of uh, privations this year, but they neither have the military capability nor the, can they compete with the distributed, much more resilient energy infrastructure that Ukraine has managed to build in a year. Um, I mean that that's quite an extraordinary turnaround, isn't it? Absolutely, that is absolutely extraordinary. Um, and, you know, we won't cover that too much more. I think we've done that topic. Unfortunately, 
you know, I scan the Western media. I don't get my information really too much from English language media. I watch a lot of, uh, you know, Russian language media on Ukraine and uh, TV and so on. Um, and some, some some really good sort of, uh, you know, uh, Russian uh, commentators who are in, in uh, you know, in immigration in, in Europe, still broadcasting. Um, but the Western media just doesn't sort of seem to find that story of resilience interesting enough to cover and I, I, f I find that kind of extraordinary but also there are certain economic topics which just get a you know a short or, or or light kind of touch and one of these is the channeling of resources and budget in Russia it's now rumored because of course no one has the genuine figures that up to 40 percent of the GDP is actually being uh, funneled towards the military um, and you mentioned corruption earlier. I mean, I wonder how much, if that number is true, it's a huge amount, how much of it actually ends up in genuinely funding the military. I mean, this could be an extraordinary money-making opportunity for many people at the same time. Well, definitely it's a money-making opportunity, only it's uh, covered in blood. Okay, that, that wouldn't touch that money. But before the war, uh, and of course, it's not fact. I don't have any uh, numbers to back it up with, okay? But I talked to, well, you know, in my previous work, I talked to quite a few people, uh, and I heard many opinions from different respected professionals that um, they thought that 80% of Russian budget was stolen. 20% hit the target. So basically, if, um, you know, 100 million rubles allocated to build a hospital, only um, 20 million actually are used to build, were used to build hospital, you know, just an example. That's 20% was... That's incredible. 20% was used. 80% was stolen. Well, you know what? Um, walk around London. I mean... Where are those money uh, came from? Russians who buy expensive properties, Miami, Dubai. How many Russians in Dubai right now? And the things, the, everything is expensive there. Uh, ask, are they business people? I don't think so. No, not not. There's, Russia doesn't have so many business people, and all business people are they're not just taking it easy in Dubai or in London. You know, they they're working in Russia. Uh, so uh, that's. Uh, Bureaucrats, officials from the Ministry of Defense, from, um, you know, the government of different levels, local governments and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's that's a far higher percentage than uh, I thought. I don't I mean. really see any reasons why they would change the system now. I mean, they probably even steal more. They yeah. must be thinking, oh, this is, you know, we don't know what the future holds us. This is, could be our last day tomorrow. So they lost to steal as much as they can for, you know, to, to, to last for the rest of their lives, to hide it somewhere. It's the last payday. I mean, that has that sense yeah. behind it. Um, and while we're on the economy, I mean, I also watched an interesting, um, they do them regularly now, sort of monthly. I think they're copying us, uh, Konstantin, but it's uh, Vladimir Milov and uh, Michael Naki. And they were discussing there another phenomenon, which is that, so much money is being pumped into the war economy and factories relating to it that actually there are signs of overheating within the economy because you have a lot of cash being injected into it 
but it's chasing too few goods. Um, do you think that's a sort of compelling argument? And, and actually, how dangerous uh, might that be if it's true? Uh, Jonathan, <laughs> Michael Naki and, and Milov, they're pillars of uh, Russian journalism. You know, <laughs> They've been doing it for so much longer than we have been doing our conversations. <laughs> so uh, they're fantastic guys, though. Um, I agree absolutely with what uh, Milov said. Uh, well, not just Milov. It's all economists in Russia. The first... Um, the first person who um, you know says it is Elvira Nabiulina. Okay, she warns everyone of economy overheating. That's why uh, she made a few decisions. Well, the central bank did to raise the key interest rate first uh, to by by one percent, one and a half percent. Then by anyway from seven and a half percent in July of twenty twenty three. Now it's 16%. It doubled in six months. And it's it's extraordinary, okay? And uh, they're doing it just for that reason, to keep the inflation under tabs. Um, because uh, just like you said, much more money now being pumped into economy uh, from different sides. One is military-industrial complex. There are so many more jobs there. There are so many more shifts. They're working 24-7, three shifts, literally. Um, there is so much more financing to all those plants, factories producing missiles, producing death. And um, another channel is those who volunteered to go and fight in Ukraine. They're making lots of money. Uh, they're making uh, 200,000 rubles per month. Uh, that's the latest I heard. And they you know, send that money to spend to their families. And uh, when they come back, they spend it themselves. Perhaps they're injured. Anyway, that's incredible amount of money being pumped into economy. And there are fewer goods because of the sanctions. And uh, because, you know, I don't really don't have statistics. Um, overall, economy grew, GDP grew by... 3%, but that's a huge rise in military-industrial complex, and it's a huge, um, huge, um, what should we call it, down in, in, in all other industries, civil yeah. industries, you know. Declining, so, yeah, because uh, they're... Decline, yeah, huge decline in other industries. And other industries produce goods that can be, and services that can be used by citizens. Military-industrial complex does not produce goods uh, that can be used by citizens. It produces missiles. They're sent to Ukraine. They blow up, and that's it. You see, and that's uh, why economy is being overheated. Exactly. There's no uh, the follow-on stimulation. Is, dangerous. Yes. The result is increased inflation, basically. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. And then you have, you know, controls that try and, uh, uh, you know, command economy controls, which further interfere with the free market, which further disrupt the system. I think we talked about it in the last episode. It's a, it's a yes, bit of a, yes. it's, a negative it's a chain spiral. of events. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yes. And the timing is not good for the Kremlin and the sort of uh, political constructors, as it were, behind the gallery of rogues that are the candidates for that election. Because 
any discontent, inflation, these problems with heating that people may be hearing about through their own sort of private networks and conversations. This is all pretty negative stuff. And in the absence of any significant military stories that can be, uh, you know, exaggerated or emphasized by propagandists, there's not a lot of good news really in the come up to the election. Now, I think we know that this isn't a normal vote and the votes aren't going to be counted sort of fairly. Putin isn't going to suddenly lose um, or even get less than whatever it is, 70%. I'm sure they've already decided what that figure is. That doesn't mean there aren't some surprises that can still happen. And uh, we had one candidate, what we discussed last time, um, uh, Dunsova, who was what looked like a kind of organic candidate because actually very quickly her candidacy was blocked. We have another candidate that's popped up, uh, Boris Nezhezhdin, and he's been allowed to run. And I don't know, call me cynical, but that suggests to me that he may not be a genuinely democratic candidate if he's been allowed to actually get into the first stages of the process. Do you know anything about him? Um, Jonathan, I will not call you cynical. <laughs> I think you are onto something here. And uh, Boris Nadezhin, actually, you see, Ekaterina Donsova was an absolute out outsider. She was not known to anyone except for some people in Tver, where she lives. She's from. I certainly did not hear her name until November of last year. Boris Nadezhin is completely different. He is a politician. is a public figure. is a somewhat a scientist, a social scientist, I guess. Uh, he was a senator from 1999 to 2003, and he was in charge in the Senate. He was in charge of uh, in the parliament. Uh, he was in charge of uh, taxation, and he was representing Russia. Uh, he was involved into Russia's representation in the uh, Union of European Council. Okay, so then he became a founder of an institute, uh, and then he did a lot of work for Russian government, research, economic research, things like that. So he's not uh, an outsider, an unknown person. He's quite known. He was uh, a frequent guest of different talk shows, and he was considered a liberal uh, or uh, somewhat liberal, okay? He was considered, you know, this... Uh, this. Uh, some people are considered liberals in the Russian government. Uh, it used to be more of them. Now it's more like an enemy of the state, liberal. And then uh, a lot of them have disappeared, fled Russia, or simply changed their stand, political stand. Uh, uh, Nadezhdin has not changed. Okay, he's um, still considered somewhat liberal. And he became a candidate to run uh, for presidency of Russia. But by being allowed to run, by actually being, you know, getting through the first round, he must have some approval at least, or at least he may not be seen as a threat to the Kremlin. I mean, what are the criteria really for someone like that getting through? Because if they're seen as a threat, they're hardly likely to uh, be allowed to continue further in the process. Um, I will quote Dmitry Peskov. 
Vladimir Putin's press secretary. He officially confirmed that Russian election is a show and a circus. Back in August, he said that um, Putin has already won by over 90% of votes. Russia is not a democracy, but rather an effective bureaucracy. And Putin has already won. I, you know, It's not me saying, that's Dmitry Peskov himself. Um, and I agree with him. I think that Russia is a circus. Uh, Russian election um, process is, is a show. It's a stage show. And Boris Nadezhdin also is one of the actors. The question is, uh, to what degree he is taking liberty to act independently? Because if you look at other candidates, well, you just don't look at them because they're nowhere to be found. <laughs> the, the candidates to run for the presidency, you know, they don't, you know, I... Uh, in my streams, I quoted them. No one is willing to win, uh, is not hoping to win. And one of the guys has, says that, of course, he knows he's not going to win because he's not an idiot. I, I, I just quoted him, okay? Um, but it's not, they were all, um, all the candidates were allowed to become candidates and to run, to participate. There are three stages in Russian election. The stage number one is um, nomination. Stage number two is registration. And number three is voting. And then a candidate must go through three stages. Candidates can be self-nominated or uh, nominated by a political party that has seats in Russian parliament. And most of the candidates are nominated by the parties. And there are a couple self-nominated candidates and the only real candidate was Ekaterina Donsova, and she was shut down. She was disqualified, not denied to enter the next stage, to move to registration. Uh, Boris Nadezhdin was allowed to move to registration, but all of a sudden something happened, and he started taking liberties of saying things that we think that he's not supposed to say. He's gone off script. And that has yeah, one... He's, that he's has gone, one yeah. Yeah, uh, pardon me. Yeah, he's gone off script. He's uh, he's possibly going rogue. <laughs> yes, yes, possibly going rogue. Uh, that has won him incredible instant popularity. This kind of same popularity that uh, Ekaterina Donsova enjoyed. Okay, uh, basically, he's saying two things. He says that he wants Putin out of the office. Putin has had enough. He needs to go. And uh, the second thing, he says that he's anti-war. He needs to, the war must be stopped. Two things. And I've heard a saying that people don't really care for Boris Nadezhdin that much. They just care for anti-Putin and anti-war. Uh, so <laughs> they care for the ideas that he represents. Uh, anyway, uh, he's been very loud at that. And I assume that that's driving the puppet masters absolutely insane because no one is supposed to say anything about like Putin's gotta go and the war's gotta stop. Now that's a big no-no, taboo. And Nadezhdin has been um, breaking that uh, taboo. Uh, well, we are going to see very soon how far he can go. 
whether he will be allowed to enter the next stage, which is the third and final stage where people will be voting for him. So if they let him to, uh, well, anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether he makes it to the next stage or not. We'll, we'll see very soon. They must make the decision before February 10th. And I think uh, well, Vladimir Putin was officially allowed to enter the third stage now, uh, prematurely, so to speak. Uh, the DFDN, I think we will wait until the 10th of February, until the very last second. We'll see so, how far he gets. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, not, it's not dull elections, you know, not like uh, elections of 2018, for example. You know, everyone said what they were supposed to say. Everyone acted as they were supposed to act. These elections, despite of everything that's going on, uh, they are shaping up to be the most interesting in years. And, you know, it, it's it, it's interesting looking at the, uh, the Western press as well, because time after time, they kind of get taken in by the puppet show as well. Um, it shows that it doesn't just sort of work in Russia. It sort of influences our press as well. And they do treat the race as if it's, sometimes they treat it as if it's a genuine process with genuine risk, you know, and they'll talk about, um, you know, new candidate threatens Putin's position or et cetera, et cetera. So they, they get sucked in to this uh uh, facade or uh, you know puppet show yes yes they do get sucked in uh and it's not just about the elections it's about everything else okay because uh people in the west they judge by themselves by their own standards by their own morals um you know i've heard of um so many times i've heard people say when i explain them what's going on they wouldn't believe me saying what well, it's simply impossible it can't be uh, you know, and it is possible in Russia. It can be, and it's happening. So you're right. Yeah, I think there's a there's a rather good uh, book that has that uh, that title that's very similar to that uh, sort of an impossible, unbelievable things happening uh, every day. Um, the last topic there is to bring this all together. You've got um, a charade of a democratic process, which in Belarus triggered actually a near revolution. You've got the heating problems with apartments, people sort of freezing. Um, you've got issues with eggs, the economy, overheating. There's all sorts of things building up into this perfect storm. And last week we had some fairly significant, you know, because they're simply very unusual, um, quite large-scale protests in Bashkortistan, which, of course, is, you know, is is a long, long way from Moscow. Um so I don't know how threatening that is to authorities in Moscow, but to see a large scale protest in a small town where a significant percentage of the population actually comes out and they came out with specific demands as well. You know, they don't want their men taken to the war. They, they, they want the ones that are there to be sent back home again with this perfect storm. Is there any chance at all that this might trigger some kind of uh, maybe not coordinated, but some kind of wide scale protest uh, against uh, Putin's pointless war? I disagree with you about uh, it's far away from Moscow and it's not that significant. But if you look at Russian history, all revolutions were born far away from Moscow. And it's like fire, like arson, 
you know, a person comes in and throws, um, you know, a Molotov cocktail and there's a little fire, but then all of a sudden it catches and it can be controlled. It can be, you know, put down if you catch it just in time. But if it starts spreading around, it becomes absolutely uncontrollable and there's nothing, it becomes a force so powerful that you can't do anything about it, okay? And it's the same thing with um, protesting. What happened in Bashkortostan uh, two weeks ago is pretty incredible uh, because at first people were absolutely peaceful and they were standing up against injustice being done in front of their eyes. They were trying to defend one of their comrades, the guy who was um, uh, standing up for, you know, against companies, federal companies coming in and destroying ecology of Bashkortostan as ecological uh, activist. Um, he said uh, he made anti-war uh, statements long time ago, right after the start of the war in 2022. And he was just now arrested uh, to si to get silenced because he, was, he has been doing a lot of uh, ecological act activism. So people came out protesting peacefully and they were demanding, you know, justice. And then all of a sudden, Siloviki came and started um, using force. And they were absolutely... Um, in their lawful rights to do so, because Silaviki now have rights to use violence against people. But people of Bashkortostan, they didn't like that, okay? 10,000 people out of a population of 17,000 came out, and they put up a good fight, okay? And um, lots of violence was used on regular folks. And... In one city of um, 17,000 people. And then the, the entire province didn't take it lightly. They were protests followed in Ufa, the capital city, uh, following weekend. And there were lots of people arrested. Again, Siloviki used violence against people. And um, the protesting hasn't stopped. Uh, the fire has not been put out, and it's really difficult to do so because the latest developments is three very influential influential figures in Bashkortostan came out. People, older people who are respected um, scholars and uh, culture, one of uh, 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 big um, you know cultural persons in Bashkortostan, and they made a joint statement recorded on video and it's been uh, circulating the internet where they are demanding the governor uh, of Bashkortostan to start um, a dialogue with people. So they're demanding negotiations. They're demanding that the, the, the governor and uh, Siloviki listen to people and they stop the violence and come up to some kind of uh, agreement. Okay. Again, that's something I have not seen uh, recently in Russia, anywhere in Russia. And this is an example. This is a very good example. And for the Kremlin, I think it's a very dangerous example. This is this is the uh, the spark. Yeah, it's the spark that sets the fire going. Um, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, 
every month I wonder, you know, what more? I mean, we actually had a lot more topics that we could potentially cover here. And we focused just on sort of three or four of them. And they've easily sort of filled the time out. It's it's incredible uh, what's happening this year. And quite unpredictable, I think, what may happen in the coming uh, weeks and months. But um, Constant, it's always a huge pleasure speaking with you. Um and no less so today. And I think this is hugely informative for the audience. I know people sort of look forward to watching this and unpicking the details that we we go through here because they don't find these details in any other sources. So I think it's a, it's a fantastic way to look at what's going on and uh, very grateful to you for, of course, spending the time to do that. Jonathan, thank you so much. I'd like to sum up our today's conversation. Look, we can't predict things. We're not oracles. But what I personally know for sure, that 2024 will be the most turbulent, the most dynamic, the most, um, I can't say interesting because it's not going to be pretty, the most um, changing year for Russia that we've seen in uh, years. I definitely have my popcorn ready right here, and uh, I keep watching keep watching that show of uh, the changes. Some say the demise. Uh, we'll see, but that's going to be quite a show to watch. Let's just hope there's no popcorn shortages, and uh, we'll keep watching. We'll keep sharing the news, <laughs> Constantine. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Jonathan. Until next time.